Welcome to the Lift Church podcast. We pray that this message encourages you and inspires you to live up to your God-given potential. I will lead you in a shake, except I have no idea what it looks like. Let's make it up. Josh will show you what the shake looks like. Here you go, Josh. It's your moment to shine. Awesome. How's everyone going? It's a little bit quiet this morning, isn't it? Yeah? Don't know why. Maybe it's because you're ready for God's Word. Two people already. Gosh. Might be a hard morning, Vic. I think we need some interpretive dancing while I'm preaching on the side. Not the right shoes. Where's Han Chan when you need her? No, she's not here. Anyway. I think that God really wants to speak this morning. Um, I prepared the word as I do during the week. Um, that's what you pay me to do. And um, I prepared, got myself ready. And then as I was just kind of practicing and, and, and trying to, to pull it together, I just sensed that God was taking it in a very different direction. And, um, and so I had to change it all up. And I share that because when it happens, God has a very specific purpose for what the Word does. I love that we are told that everything that God says, that every single bit of His Word doesn't return void. It doesn't fall away. It's not empty. It actually accomplishes something. And so I really genuinely feel like God wants to accomplish something in each and every single person. And for that to happen, though, God doesn't force it into... uh, God doesn't, he's not in the business of force feeding. Have you noticed that? That you can actually be at the banquet table with Jesus and you can still be starving spiritually inside. You can be completely shriveled up like a prune in the presence of God. And so this morning, can I just ask uh, that you open up, that you get yourself ready because I think that God wants to speak. Don't, Don't come in here with your walls up because you might as well stay home. You can watch someone else preach better uh, over, over the TV, over YouTube, all that kind of stuff. But if you're here, it's because the presence of God is something that you are seeking. If you are here, it's because God wants to do something in your life. I don't believe that there's any single person here by accident. He wants to speak. Yeah. So can we just pray? And right now, can I ask that you make a decision that you open up because God wants to speak? God I pray that we open our hearts to you. I pray that we don't come with, um, with our issues and our agendas and, uh, or our minds distracted. But God, I pray right now that you want to speak something that brings freedom, that brings hope, and that it brings life. I pray that we don't walk out of this room the same, but God, that there's something in us that challenges us to see that there is so much more that you have for each and every single one of us. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Turn to the person next to you and said, are you ready? Finally, there's a little bit of response going on. You know, last week I started kind of part one of this message and uh, last week was also week three in our Stay Woke series. So I know that might be a bit confusing. It's all available on, pod- uh, on podcast. And uh, last week I started sharing about this whole idea of how we approach uncomfortable situations and how that completely dictates whether we grow or whether we stagnate. Yeah? Anyone remember that? If not, it's on podcast. We looked into John chapter 6 and we saw 
how there was a group of disciples, a massive group of disciples, possibly up to 10,000 people that had purposely given of their time to find Jesus. They came to him, they heard his teaching. Uh, overnight, Jesus fed them all. There's a feeding of 5,000. There's in John chapter 6. And then after that, in the middle of the night, Jesus decides to go across the lake. And these people, they went and continued to search for Jesus. These people wanted what Jesus had. But then when they got to Jesus, we read about this conversation that took place and Jesus was sharing about how they needed to eat his flesh and eat and drink his blood, which isn't referring to communion, it's referring to complete surrender to everything that he teaches. We spoke about that last week. And the, the, these disciples who had literally already given up so much to follow Jesus, they said, this is too hard. This is way too hard. And Jesus says, in John 6, 62, I believe, he says, does this offend you? Is this a little bit uncomfortable for you, what I have just said? And we talked about how maybe sometimes Jesus is the God of your discomfort. We talked about dis-ease. We pulled apart the word dis-ease, and we said that dis-ease is a lack of ease. If you look into the English definition of the word disease, it is not an illness, it is actually a lack of ease. In fact, the original word was used as a synonym for inconvenient. So when I'm feeling diseased, I'm actually feeling inconvenienced. I'm not necessarily fighting an illness that is coming to attack me, I'm simply being inconvenienced. That's the original meaning of the word disease. And we talked about how Jesus's words caused this crowd to be diseased. Following me so far? If you are following, say yes. If not, I have to keep recapping. And we'll preach last week's message, which most of you have already heard, even though it was a great message if I saved so myself. Beck told me, it's like, Nate, that was one of my favorite messages that you've ever spoken. I was like, let's put a record on and... Um, uh, you know, let's let, yeah. Anyway, anyway, so so Jesus said those words that caused these people to feel offended, to feel uncomfortable with what he was saying. But Jesus continued to do it. He continued to speak these words, and he explains why he did that. In John six sixty three, he said, "The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life." See, God doesn't so much worry about your disease as He worries about whether you are receiving life or not. And sometimes the only way that we can receive life is through our disease. What do I mean by this? Is that through our disease, it is supposed to cause us to think a little bit deeper about what is going on inside of us, revealing a disorder and we spoke about this we started to unpack it which is what I want to do a lot more today I want to talk about disorder because disorder is something that we need to deal with disease causes us if we see something as a disease that we need to deal with we go through what we talked about the avoidance machine last week we run away from things that causes us to feel diseased. That's what we do. But in the process of avoiding stuff, 
The problem is that it continues to build up fear and anxiety about the future. Basically, if you use the avoidance machine, your life gets smaller. That is what psychology teaches us about anxiety, which we'll be talking about over the next few weeks. But in many ways, when we allow our discomfort to dictate our actions and say, I need to get rid of this discomfort, we end up avoiding and our lives get smaller because we start to become fearful about so many things in our life. That's explained a lot better last week. We don't have time this week to go through that. But what we do with our disease is still important. When we go see a doctor, we actually talk to our doctor about our disease. Is that right? We go to a doctor and, and, and a doctor so you say, what, what, what do you, what's wrong? What are you feeling? And you tell a doctor, oh, I've got uh, stomach cramps, I've got a headache, I've got uh, a runny nose, I've got a lack of energy. All of these things are diseases. But they're not really the real problem, is that right? The doctor uses those symptoms, those diseases, in order to diagnose a deeper issue that is taking place. The disorder. We need to be able to learn how to bring our disease to a place where we can get a proper diagnosis and learn about our disorder. Let me say that again. We need to take our disease to bring about a diagnosis of a deeper disorder so that we can deal with the disorder. If a doctor simply prescribes medication to deal with your disease but not your disorder, you will never get better. You will never be well. In fact, the disease will continue in your life at some point. Maybe the drugs will lose its effectiveness and you're going to need to get stronger drugs just in order to deal with the disease. But if you're able to get to the root of the issue, if you're able to get to the disorder, then you're able to bring real change. And more than likely, when you bring change to a disorder, when you reorder it the way that it's supposed to, your diseases will also disappear. And this is what I believe that we need to do as Christians. In particular this year, I'm sensing that God really wants us to get into a deeper place where we are dealing with our disorders. What is a disorder? A disorder is a lack of order. God has created us in a certain way. And when we live in a way that is out of that plan and out of that purpose, it is disordered. When something is disordered, it is not able to function as well as it's supposed to. It might require more energy to be able to have the same output. It might, it might break down and wear out more quickly because of this disorder in, 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 in the way that it functions. And, and that's the same with our spiritual lives. There are so many things that are out of order. There's so many things that we are not placing in its correct position in order that we can experience life. And that was what was happening in John chapter 6 when Jesus said, I am bringing you life, but you are just seeing the discomfort that you have right now. My words is what you truly were searching for in the first place, but because it hits something deep inside, and we become so attached to our disorders uh, that we prefer to deal with a disease rather than to bring reorder into our lives. And this is something that we see in a very interesting passage in Mark chapter 6. Uh, sorry, Mark chapter 9. I'm going to read it to you. Jesus and um, Peter, James and John, his top three disciples, if you will, they had, just had a little bit of a mini retreat 
and they were away from the rest of the disciples. And um, so they were coming back. Verse 14 says this: When they came to the other, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as soon as people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought, uh, so they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit, the spirit shrieked, convulsed him so violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples came to him privately and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. Why am I bringing out this passage? It's because it's kind of a little bit out there. See, to set the scene, Jesus had actually set and empowered his disciples out to continue his earthly ministry. In fact, after a little bit of training, he sent them out. And these guys, they were going out, they were preaching the gospel, and they were praying for sick people, and they were being healed. They prayed for demon-possessed people, and they were being set free. This was happening all over Israel. And then in this scene, these very same disciples who had seen so much success in what they had been doing, they, they encountered a man who brought a, a son who was deeply, deeply distressed. And I would think that this dad himself would be equally distressed by what had been taking place in his life. If you can just pause for a moment and just consider what this dad had been going through. This son of his, right from young, from childhood, he's still not very old, but, but even right from this young age, suddenly he loses his speech, which is... For me, it was kind of interesting because uh, when, when, when Jesus asked what's wrong, this man says, oh, he's got a, a mute spirit that stops him from talking. But really, the deeper issue is that this spirit would randomly take this child and flip him in the fire or flip him in the water and try to kill him. I'm kind of like, Dad, you got your priorities wrong. Your son doesn't need to talk. Your son needs to be, you know, there's something else that's going on. Anyway, there's a side note. But... But Jesus was talking to this man, and, and, and can you just imagine having to watch over your child because you do not know at what moment they're going to flip out. Can you imagine, think about any child that you have seen that you love, and can you imagine that one moment they're happily playing with you, 
and next moment they are bolting to run and jump into a fire. And that is random. At any moment, at any time. Can you imagine how much your life would be defined by this situation that is taking place? In fact, in those kinds of small towns, maybe the whole town was defined by this child. Because at any given moment, at any given day, this child would be running into danger and into death and someone would have to swoop in and save him. Can you imagine what this dad's identity was like? Can you imagine what it was like to be this child's father, savior? His whole life would have been wrapped up in this pattern of existence. And so this dad, he's about Jesus' ministry, searches out Jesus, only finds his disciples, but that's maybe good enough. People have said the disciples can do what Jesus does. And so this dad comes to the disciples and said, can you do something about this? The disciples try and nothing happens. And this causes a commotion. And the Bible tells us that a crowd began to form. And who was in the crowd? Do you remember? It was the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law is never good news in the New Testament. The teachers of the law were Jesus' opponents. They hated how Jesus was taking authority away from them. They hated how Jesus had this authority and this way of teaching that caused people to want to listen. He would pull crowds together and so they hated this Jesus. And he didn't look like the Messiah that they were waiting for because they were waiting for a political Messiah when the real Messiah of their soul, of their eternity was right there in front of them. And when the teachers of the law would gather together, it was always to test what Jesus was going to do. It was always to watch for an opportunity to take Jesus down. And so Jesus re-enters into the scene and he sees this crowd of people and he sees the teachers of the law and immediately what did he say? He says, what are you guys arguing about? Wherever the teachers of the law come, it becomes an argument that is taking place in that moment. There is something intellectual that they are trying to hash out. And maybe, maybe, maybe there's conversations like, maybe Jesus isn't as good as you think he is. Or maybe Jesus doesn't care about you. Or maybe you're not good enough. Whatever the argument was, there was a debate that was raging so much so that when Jesus comes in, it wasn't any more about this child. It was about a debate. Isn't it interesting that sometimes we get ourselves into debates that is never really about the issue, and it's about something else completely. And we, we, we go onto social media and, and, and we see this inflammatory post that some idiot put, puts up, and you see a whole bunch of other idiots debating about an idiot point that no one really cares about, and the real issue is not dealt with. Jesus steps into there and says, what are you arguing about? In that moment of clarity, the father speaks up and says, my son needs help. My son needs help. But if you look at his words, you can sense that there was something deeper that was going on in this father's heart. Let me read it to you. It says, If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. That is verse 
22. When Jesus comes and asks about the real problem, about the real issue, and the Father talks about it, he asks two key questions in that one statement that I just read. He asks Jesus, if you can, and then he asks, if you will. If you can, and if you will. This father had brought an issue that he wanted to solve, and he brought it to Jesus, and he had two questions that he was asking. If you can, and if you will. What was Jesus' response? He said, if you can. Everything is possible for him who believes. Now, this is a statement that Jesus makes in many, many cases. He says, your faith has made you well to many people that he healed. Obviously, this whole idea of belief is something that is very important. And why, I, why this stood out to me is because I believe that the healing only took place when a reordering had already happened. A reordering was happening in this father's heart in his spirit and in his mind he had been drawn into a debate and forgotten about the real issue so much so that when he came to the one that he was looking for in the first place he was already doubting whether jesus could and whether jesus would as us as christians the more we go through our lives those two questions that have always got away are trying to permeate our soul where we start to go through a situation and we start to ask ourselves is jesus really able to do something about this or is jesus really going to do something about this what does this say about me what does this say about god and we ask all of these deep important questions but what jesus brought to this man was this clarity in this moment said you're the one that came to me in the first place you're the one that searched me out you're the one that wanted to believe that there is hope in me and suddenly you're doubting jesus was pointing out something that was going on deep inside this man's heart and i believe that it becomes clear when we look at romans 12 verse 2 in Romans 12 verse 2, it says, Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your... By the renewing of your... Notice this. There's a lot in the Bible that talks about our mind and our thoughts. And it talks about the transformation happening because of a renewing of the... It doesn't talk about a renewing of your heart which many of us believe that that's what Christianity is all about. We believe that Christianity is all about changing our affections and our emotions and our desires. But really, it starts with the transformation of the renewing of the mind, the way that you think, the way that you receive truths. And that is something that is extremely important because many of us are going through our Christianity expecting God to change our emotions when God is actually changing the way that we see truth. And it says at the start, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. When I look at this dad, he had a pattern. When I looked at that first line, I used to think that it was about sinful patterns of living, right? Do not be conformed to the sinful patterns. And I, I looked at myself and said, I don't kill anyone. 
hopefully, not that I know of. I, I, I don't steal. I don't, I don't worship any other gods as far as I know. I, I look at the Ten Commandments and I'm like, well, I don't, do, I don't really do many sinful things. I'm not controlled by those patterns. But as I was thinking about what God is wanting to do in our church and in our lives this year, God began to show me that the patterns of this world are not necessarily the sinful patterns, but they're more the patterns that are holding us in a different place to where God wants us to be. And so this dad, he brought his pattern of existence needing to look after this child. Can I just say that many well-meaning Christians are caught up in a pattern of caring for other people, but leaves God out of the picture. There's so many of us with this nurturing, desiring to help people, this heart for people, but we become the carers and we forget to bring Jesus into the middle of this picture. So this dad, he brings his son with whom his whole existence had been captured and, and brought around. And Jesus was saying to him, are you willing to let me have that? Because this dad was suddenly having doubts. He looked at his pattern of existence. He looked at his son and he said, I know how powerful this thing is. I know how long it's had a grip on my son's life and on my life. I know its capabilities and I know what it's able to do and I know how to manage it and I know how to exist with it. And he brought it to Jesus and he looks at Jesus and he goes, are you more powerful or are you more powerful? Do you see this tension inside of this man? Suddenly he's like, if you can and if you will. Because I know that this is more powerful. Some of us are coming to God with these patterns of existing. And we come to God and we know that God is great and all of that stuff. But we go to Him and we, go, we look at this pattern and we go, maybe this pattern is stronger than Jesus. At least I know how to manage this. Some of us are living with patterns of existence that are holding us back from what God is wanting to do. Because we don't know if God can and if God will. And the only way to change that in Romans 12 verse 2 is to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Notice what it says next. Then, then means after that, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And this put a conundrum in me. And this is where the whole disease thing comes from. Because it's only after we hold on to the truths of that Jesus, then we know what His will is. Only after we believe, then we will understand. But so often we wait to understand before we believe. And so this dad comes to Jesus with his desire to understand before he believes. And in that moment he was stuck because Jesus said, no, 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 you need to believe before you can fully understand. And so Jesus says, anything is possible for him who believes. What was his father's response? I do believe, help my unbelief. And it shows a deep tension that all of us are going through inside of our lives. Because I think that when we come in contact with the truth, when we come in contact with God's Word, when we come in contact with the life that He offers, 
we want to believe. But there's also unbelief sitting right there, looking, pointing us to the pattern of living that has so gripped us and held us back. And so we are unable to fully believe, or that's how we feel like because of this unbelief. But what does this man do? He cries out to God in this moment, God, I want to become, I want to be above this pattern. I don't want this to rule my life anymore. Help me believe. And help my unbelief. In that moment, Jesus performs a miracle. But I want to show you one more thing. Jesus performs the miracle and a boy dies. It's a bit interesting. Because Jesus is God, right? Why did a boy have to die? Have a, have a little think about this. If, if, if Jesus really is all that powerful, why did the child need to die? The child needed to die because God was bringing not his old life back, but was bringing new life. In our old patterns of thinking, God is not trying to resurrect your old patterns of thinking. He's trying to bring a new way of thinking. He's trying to bring something new. This is what reordering looks like for us spiritually. We're not necessarily bringing a diseased boy to God, but we are bringing our diseased patterns of thinking that have held us back. And when we bring our diseased patterns of thinking to God, it is extremely uncomfortable because we have to submit it to a higher authority, which is Jesus. But sometimes we don't necessarily think that Jesus is a higher authority. And that's where the disease comes from. That how can I trust someone? You need to show me first. And God is saying, no, 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 no. That's not the order that you exist by. You believe first and then you can experience the life. It is by grace that you are saved through faith. God doesn't give you life unless you start to believe. The grace of God is already available, but you need to access it because of your faith. A reorientering of your life to say yes to what God is saying. And in that moment, what happens is that your old patterns of thinking needs to die in order that God can bring new life in. I'm using this story as a bit of a metaphor, but to give you a bit more context in my life, this is something that God has and continues to work in me. So I was growing up as a bit of a quiet guy, didn't really think much about, I don't know, I didn't really like people when I was growing up, and my parents can, can admit to that. I did not, I thought people were messy and annoying, still are. And, um, and when I was about 13 years old, uh, I was part of the kids team at church, and we did a personality test. It was the first time I had ever done a personality test. And it was one of those where it was talking about um, the phlegmatic, the melancholy, the uh, choleric, and the sanguine. Anyone familiar with those? Yeah, many people are. I'll give you a quick rundown. These are stereotypes. These are not uh, completely true. Uh, but the sanguine personality is the life of the party. They just love people. They want people to be around them all the time. The melancholy personality is the creative personality. They just like... Um, doing creative, fun stuff, and they tend to be extremely emotional. Um, then there's a phlegmatic person, which is the easy-go, uh, lucky person. Nothing really affects this person. They're very chill. And then there's the choleric person, who is supposed to be the natural-born leader. Now, when I look at those things with what I've studied, I don't believe that they're great 
um, ways of seeing our life because it really boxes us up uh, and our personality is quite fluid. But anyway, I did this test and it was the first time I did anything of its kind to kind of understand who I was. And as a 13-year-old, you can kind of imagine I'm in this process of determining who I am. And, and I did this test and I thought more than likely I would be a phlegmatic person. I looked at the description and I was like, yep, that is me to a T. I just sit around and do nothing all day. That's basically what a phlegmatic person does. That sounds exactly like Nate. That's probably who Nate's going to be. I did the quiz and um, no surprise there, I got 0% sanguine. Literally. I hate parties. And I got married to someone who loves parties. It is quite funny. God does these things. But anyway, no sanguine at all. But my number one surprised me. 13-year-old Nate was not expecting it. I literally was surprised because I got my highest personality type as a choleric. I wanted sanguine. I didn't want choleric. Because what choleric meant was a certain type of leader that I did not like. It's a strong, powerful leader that would trample over people in order to get things done. And, but the more I looked into it and the more I existed, I was like, okay, yeah, maybe this is right. And for the next decade of my life, I, I recognize now that there was an awakening inside of me that I was like, maybe I'm made to be a leader. Maybe I'm made to be a leader. Maybe I'm made to lead. Maybe that's, 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 that's what I'm meant to be doing with myself. But over the next 10 years, it was probably, I would think it's God's way of telling me that I was not meant to be a leader. See, when I was growing up, my sister and I were really close, sister two years older than me, Dora. We call her Dory after um, Finding Nemo came out. And I think partly I call her Dory just because it made me feel better about myself. And, um, and, and, and so Dora and I were growing up and her being older, she was always picked for leadership stuff. And I was never picked for leadership stuff. And then we ended up moving across to Australia when we were 15. And uh, we were looking for a church and we finally found ourselves at what was then known as Perth Christian Life Centre. And um, we, we decided to make that our home church and we went for youth group because at the time I was 15, Dora was 17 and that's what we did as good Christian kids. We went to youth group and um, literally on the first day we went to youth group. At the end of the night, one of the key youth leaders comes up to us. This is the first time these two little Asians were at youth group and so we stuck together. That's kind of what Asians do. Can I hear an amen? Asians, we, we know our type, we know our people, and we feel safe amongst our kind. So Dora and I were stuck together um, the whole night. And, um, and this youth leader comes to us, turns to Dora and says, Hey, would you like to join like, the leadership training group? Because I think that you've got leadership written all over you. I was standing right there. I didn't even get a high. I got no eye contact. There was nothing in that moment that said, Nate, you will one day be a leader as well. This was 15-year-old Nate, still trying to figure himself out, still trying to work things out, and he wasn't noticed. Dora joins this thing, and she starts to become a leader, and I was like, this is Singapore all over again. Where do I need to go? New Zealand? No one notices Nate. And um, this is me putting some words to my very... Um, fuzzy adolescent self, but 
I remember year 11 came around and I, I was thinking, I was really fired up for God in that season. I loved what was happening in Australian church. It was so different to what I experienced in Singapore. And one of the things that they kept talking about was Savior School, Savior School. And I felt something in me going, maybe I could start up a Bible club for my school, Rossmore Senior High School. And I was excited about it. And I went to talk to my youth leader. And he was extremely discouraging. He was like, yeah, mate, um, if you want to do that, yeah, um, that's cool. Um, you talk to the chaplain uh, and see what happens from there. Maybe, maybe we could do something. And I was a bit like, what's going on here? I was like, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll do that. At least I can do that. I went to talk to my chaplain, who was even worse than my youth leader. I don't know what's wrong with these people. They didn't see leadership goals standing in front. I got choleric as my top personality, people. I stood there, I, I, I went to my chaplain, and my chaplain literally said something to this effect. She said, Rossmoyne's a very hard school. A Bible club won't work. And that was about it. Literally. My leadership aspirations at that point was getting a really massive slap across the face. And I started to develop a way of thinking, a pattern of thinking, that as much as I felt that God had put something in my life, I was always needing to know whether I was good enough to make that happen. It was a pattern of thinking that began to grip me, so much so that when I did get leadership positions, I was always worried about whether I was going to be an effective leader. I was spending my whole time trying to read people in the room to see whether they truly was leaning into my leadership. Any little thing that would say that I'm not a good leader would, would, would stay in my mind for days and would rattle around in my head and start to speak to me about how maybe I got it wrong. And that continued on, continued on, and continued on. Finally, I was given... I, came, I went to Singapore Army, I came back, I started doing uni, and I went to Centerpoint Church, and, and I love Centerpoint Church, it really is such a great home for me for many years as I was developing, and one thing though that was happening was that I was always the second in charge leader and never the first in charge leader. It just happened. I volunteered for everything, and I was always put in the second in charge position, and never in the, I don't know what was going on. And finally, Pastor Joel gave me leadership of a team. And I was so locked into this pattern of thinking that I needed to prove myself as a leader. I was so locked into it that all of my leadership decisions with this team was made with this idea that I needed to prove myself. Because if I don't prove myself, I will fade into the shadows. Dora will probably come in and become a leader again. That part not so true. But that was the underlying pattern of thinking inside of me. This is a pattern that I existed by. This is a pattern that today continues to come out every now and then. And, and, and I led this team terribly, absolutely terribly. The team failed. It was disbanded. And I remember going to Pastor Joel's office. And um, Pastor Joel was great because he just has this way of knowing what's going on inside a person's life, I believe is a gift of God. And, and, um, and he said to me, I know I've told a story before, but giving you a bit more context. And, and, and he said, Nate, 
why did you not come to me for help? When all this was going on, I, was, I, I had no answer. And then later on, he just looked at me, just a few seconds later, he looked at me and he said, Nate, you are a good leader. And in that moment, my pattern was rearing its ugly, demonic head. Because what my pastor was telling me, which I believe was the Holy Spirit trying to break through my walls and break through my patterns and trying to say something about where I'm going and who I'm meant to be, right? I needed to hear this. But in that moment, I was extremely diseased with hearing those words because I was like, I have not proven myself. You do not say that to me. You're, these are pity words. These are pity words. I don't need your pity words, Pastor Joel. I need to know whether I really am a good leader. But Pastor Joel simply looked at me and said, you are a good leader. The reason why I chose you for this is because you are a good leader. And something was breaking on the inside of me. In that moment, I needed to let that pattern die in order to be able to hold on to the truth that God was bringing to me. God was breathing new life into a 10-year-old, 10 years of experience of, of what I thought was being overlooked, of, of being told that I am not good enough and of being told that it's really too hard and you don't have the capacity or the effectiveness to really make change in this arena. Those words, I needed to let it die in order that the new word of God would speak to me. To this day, that pattern still rears its head. Last week, I was at a state executive meeting and, 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 and Pastor Joel, uh, chairing the meeting, uh, a couple of times said to me, Nate, would you like to follow up on this? And I was like, no way, Jose. I'm, I'm the second youngest on this team by far. And I, there was like, I think he's a 30-year-old and then I'm 33 and then it jumps to something like 45 or something like that. And, and uh, Pastor Joel wanted me to follow up with a couple of people who were in their 50s. And I was like, you got 50-year-olds for that. Give me 30-year-olds. I can deal with that. Don't give... And there was something in me that said, I'm so uncomfortable with this. There was something I, I... You know what the words were? I'm unproven. Are you sure you want to give that to me? The pattern was bubbling up and trying to bring his nasty zombie hand to grip my heart again. And then I just remembered, if God's called me for this... He knows I can do this. You know, there's some of you that are listening to patterns of thinking that have stopped you from understanding who God is and who God says you are. There's some of you that have got patterns of thinking that have been brought about by situations that no person should have gone through. There's some of you that have got patterns of thinking that have gone, that because of situations that have said certain things about who you are and sometimes we think that these are positive things some of these come from the successes that we've had some of these come from the failures that we've had but we allow these patterns to dictate the way that we live you know we watched a movie last night it was called only the brave and it was about these firefighters um, in America and at one point the characters said this and I just love it he said that we don't see things the way that they are. We see things the way that we are. 
Our patterns of thinking cause us to say yes to things and to say no to other things. My pattern was destroying me from the inside out. And I didn't even know it until the truth came. Letting go of my pattern was one of those moments where I needed to die in order to live. Do you know in Romans 12 verse 2, we read this and it sounds so amazing and it sounds so great. Do you know what Romans 12 verse 1 says? Say, therefore, present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And we tend to take these two verses and we split them up. One is about worship and living for God and one is about thinking and being renewed in our thinking. No, 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 no. Paul put them together. You present yourself as a living sacrifice by dying to your old patterns. You present yourself as one who can truly live for God and be consecrated for God, consecrated for God when you have released yourself from patterns of thinking that is not aligned with the truth of God's Word. And so God, over this year, over the rest of your life, is trying to bring truth that brings freedom, that brings hope, and brings life. Some of you are meant to be leaders, and some of you are meant to be doing amazing things. Some of you are meant to be uh, uh, just, just uh, the dreams and, and the visions that you got of your life. They, they are so overwhelming that they scare the crap out of you sometimes. And, and you say no to those things because you're looking at your pattern and say, I could never do that. But God is saying over this year, if I created you, I have resourced you, and I'm going to grace you for this. If we are to truly access the life that God has for us, we need to reorder our thinking. Reorder the truths that we are subscribing to. Some of you are still sitting on the fence regarding Jesus because you're looking at your life and you go, well, I've done pretty okay for myself, so I don't need Jesus. Maybe that's your pattern. Maybe Jesus isn't what you thought he is. Maybe your patterns of what you thought success were, are they really all that great? Having a nice house, having money, having raised a family, having all of these things, are they truly success? Or are you still searching for something more? What are some of the areas in your life that are disordered? that you have come around and you have lived according when God has got so much more for you. If we can get the band up this morning. I hope that this morning what I presented helps you to see that some of the things that you are holding on to are actually disease, are, are, are disorders, are, are things that stop you from truly experiencing the life that God has for you. And I hope that you will see that the process of change takes time, takes effort, takes commitment, but it's so much better on the other side. And I, I, I pray that like this father who have brought this problem to Jesus. Even with doubt, even with all these issues that were taking place in his life, he was still able to say, I believe, help my unbelief.
See, I believe that God gives us enough to be able to trust Him. But then there's even more that sometimes you believe before you'll be able to see what He's wanting to do. And I pray that in your life that you will be able to have the courage to say those words, I believe, help my unbelief. Renew my mind. Help me to see your truths and to see what truths I have been holding on to that need to be submitted to your truth. I love the song that we sang, Jesus at the center. And when we sang those words, Jesus be the center of my life. Do you truly mean it? Are you making decisions based on the pattern of who God is, on the patterns that you have picked up through your life? I have gone over my time. And so this morning, if I can get everyone just to stand up, we are going to finish in just a couple of moments. Oh, we're just going to sing this song, just that verse. We're going to sing it as a, as a prayer. And I pray that you just allow God to speak into your situation, into your life. Because I believe that God wants to bring truth to people today. He's going to remind some people of things that He has said to you previously that you have pushed away. And this morning I believe that there's a reordering that God is doing in your life. Let's just sing that one more time as our prayer this morning. Thank you for tuning in today. If you would like to find out more about Lyft, check out our website at theliftchurch.com.au.